Hi everyone, welcome to this week's podcast. Um, hope you're doing okay. I'm a little bit late this week. I seem to be saying that every week at the moment. Uh, I'm not really sure where the time goes, but uh, it's Tuesday evening. It's quite late now. Um, and yeah, it's just seemed to have... Um, sort of just the days got to roll by at the moment in a kind of um in a kind of strange way that the sort of I'm still I'm still at work in the week um but the sort of working day depending on what other colleagues are doing and stuff tends to sort of be just be kind of strange hours it sometimes you can be doing things in the evening and then other times very sort of intense in the mornings slightly quieter afternoons and busier evenings sometimes the mornings are very quiet um, and the afternoons get busy, um, and then other times it's just like full on all day. Well, a lot of the evenings I've sort of been spending actually doing quite a lot of practice, and also just doing working on some writing and bits and bobs of stuff, um, and also trying to do some stuff outside of music. So been doing some uh, little DIY things. <clears throat> doing quite a lot of um, stuff in the garden as well. I'm trying to get another shed um, built. I've been sort of designing a new shed because um, uh, as people kind of who know me know I've got this sort of where I'm sat now. It's, uh, it's a drum shed. It's uh, it's actually a, a proper structure. Uh, it's, not a, it's not a sort of single membrane shed sort of thing. It's a proper cladded, you know... Um, insulated uh, office really um which used to be my girlfriend's summer house before uh, i lived here um she built it for somewhere to sit where it was warm during sort of between may and mid-september really up up at the top of the garden and um, when we first kind of met and i first started coming here wherever however long ago seven or eight years ago um that's exactly what we were, that's exactly what we did up here. It was very nice just to sit and have a beer and just look out. It's got a great view <clears throat> out towards Winter Hill. If anybody knows Bolton, um, in fact, if anyone's ever lived in sort of northwest of England, Winter Hill is probably more known to anybody than people realise because there's a huge TV mast on Winter Hill. And um, that's where the telly used to come from i don't know what the vibe is these days i don't know anything about it but when i was growing up i grew up in a place called glossop uh which is just inside derbyshire it's where my brother still lives um with his girlfriend and uh that's where i grew up and we lived on a little estate just outside glossop called simondley and the, the funny thing about simondley was this is why i always knew about winter hill even though i'd never been here really up until I lived here, actually. But the um, we had good TV reception and we got Channel 4 um, very early on. And the reason why is because the aerial on our house pointed towards Winter Hill, which was this sort of unfathomable hill miles and miles and miles away from where we were. Um, so to sort of get your head around, if you look at, if you look at a map of Manchester... Um, if you look at Glossop, it's on the Peak District side, so it's out out of Manchester, out beyond Thameside, into Derbyshire, sort of towards Sheffield, really. Um, 
there's quite a famous road in the UK called the Snake Pass, which is a road which um, goes straight through Glossop, Sheffield Road, A57, and, and takes you over the hill to uh, to Sheffield. And and then if you look at the map, you see the whole of Manchester, the Greater Manchester area, um, and literally, I'd say, you know, the opposite side of the clock face almost uh, is where we are here in Bolton. Um, and Winter Hill is is out this side, northwest Bolton. Uh, Winter Hill's about about two miles up the road from here, but I, we can see the mast from our house, and I can see it now. Actually, look out the window. There's always these red lights that are just above the sort of brow of a road called Scout Road, which is a, a lovely little road, which is often my preferred route out of, um, well, to work away from the home to sort of get towards the motorway because don't much enjoy, enjoy driving down sort of Blackburn Road and through Bolton. Uh, when you've got a nice little twisty road to go and uh, enjoy, um, which is sort of out in the middle of nowhere. And it takes you over, you can get over to the, um, the M61, um, which is just a slightly more interesting drive. It's, it's a bit longer. Um, it's normally a bit quieter uh, at the moment, obviously. I mean, I've hardly been doing any driving at all. I've been out a handful of times in my car in the last seven weeks. Um and yeah, it's just been a strange old time with the old driving side of things. But um, yeah, so anyway, you know, we live near this place called Winter Hill, and the bizarre thing about—sorry, I've gone off on one as I normally do—but when we lived in Glossop, in Simmonley, right opposite our house, on the other side of the valley, um, if you know Glossop, there's a massive TV mast. I mean, it's huge, and it sits on top of a, a hill that's basically opposite the estate I lived on, and that mast didn't get channel four for years and years and years and years and our, and our area on our house pointed to winter hill so um so yeah that's kind of the vibe of um of where where we are at the moment and it was really nice weather over the weekend as you know in the uk we've all been lucky enough to have some nice weather which has made a big difference at the moment i think even with the lockdown thing and you know we, we not, don't have a lot of options for kind of going out and stuff just that thing of, of getting away from the grey and the rain has made a big difference. So, um, but this week has been a, it's been very cold yesterday and today, but it's been very sunny. So it's, and it's a beautiful evening this evening. Just looking out the window now, a lovely clear sky. I have some nice stars tonight. I can see, I think it's Venus up there or something already. Um, but it's, yeah, it's just, I've just been really enjoying the garden, just trying to do a bit of physical exercise. The other thing I realised I hadn't been doing um, since... Well, basically, I, my, the last day I was in where I work was the 17th of March. Uh, and I came home on the afternoon of the 17th of March. And I've been here ever since. Um, and I've been... We've got quite a big garden. Um, and to get up to my to where the drum shed is, is a bit of a climb. We've got these quite, they're quite steep. They're actually quite dangerous steps in the winter. And uh, and I sort of, um, I had to re-chicken wire the, the, the railway sleepers. They're basically made out of railway sleepers. And the um, each step has, has chicken wire on it, which basically gives it grip. And all of the chicken wire had, had you know, had... Uh, deteriorated over the last couple of years it could just rusts you know um 
eventually the weather gets to it and it gets walked on every day. So so I spent um, a few weeks ago, uh, I did the last bit, last year I did a huge amount of it. It took hours and hours and hours. And um, yeah, it's just one of those jobs that you, you don't want to do. But a few weeks ago I finished it off. So um, so it's a bit of a climb up here, which is quite good. And I tend to sort of, sometimes I try and run up here a little bit. And uh, it's just that little thing of giving your body a little bit of a, a bit of a kick up the backside. But um, the funny thing about sort of not going to work is that where I park in Leeds uh, is where we have uh, a flat. We have the house here, and then we have a flat in Leeds that we that I used to live in. Uh, I lived there for a few years. Um, and we now we now rent it out. It's, it's actually empty at the moment. Some of the people that we had in there just moved out before the lockdown. So it's been uh, sadly it's been empty. But that's you know that's okay. Uh, but the the park I I park my car there when I go to work. So we keep we keep the parking spaces. So I don't have to pay for parking because it's a fortunes in Leeds to pay. It costs you ten to twelve pound a day. You know um, if you're not organised, it's, it's easily eight pound a day if you are. Uh, on top of the petrol driving here, it's 100 miles a day. It really ma- uh, mounts up. So, But the nice thing about the parking space is the walk to work is, depending on how energetic I am, is between 7 and 10 minutes. So every day I get to do that little tiny, it's only a short walk, you know. Um, it's probably it's just under a mile, I'd say. Uh, I don't know, I've got no idea how long it is. It takes, yeah, if I walk slowly, it takes 10 minutes. If I walk briskly, it takes about 6, 7 minutes. Um, so I just realised a week or so ago that I had, um, well, I was getting a bad back and I never, ever had uh, a bad back in my life. My back's been, I've been very lucky with my back. Even when I, you know, I was a kid and I was playing in the brass band at school and we were carrying all this gear around and people say, you know, don't, don't bend your back, bend your legs and all that stuff, which is easy to sort of, to say and hard to remember when you're lugging, you know, especially drum hardware and things, you're just picking things up, aren't you? And and uh, I've been very blessed, you know, touch wood. Um, my back has been fine. Anyway, about two weeks ago, I started getting a bad back and I realised that I just haven't been walking. So what I've been doing um, in the mornings and, and a couple of evenings over the weekends, because it was uh, nice evenings, it's just first thing in the morning is, is doing this little 20 minute walk which is basically the 20 minutes I would normally walk to work and I'm walking but this is a slightly more um, you know it's a bit more um, physical walk um, and it's basically up towards um, out of the house up towards Winter Hill but nowhere near that far and then we'll go up on the hills and we'll do a little do a little round basically come back right around the back of the garden so that's been nice as well. And then doing some stuff in the garden, doing a bit of digging, and having, I've got this new shed that we um, I just mentioned before that I've been sort of designing. So it's going to be we've got a shed down the bottom of the garden which is just full of crap, you know, like all sheds are. And it's also it's really been hit hard by like the weather and damp and stuff. It's it's at the bottom of a quarry, and lots of stuff collects around the side of this shed, you know. So. So the shed's been sort of deteriorating. The various animals have made various holes in the side of this shed. 
over the last uh, couple of years or so, as the, as the wood has rotted, you know. So um, the guy who built this this uh, summer house here is a guy uh, called Russell up in uh, he's got his up in Blackburn, I think he's. I can't remember where his place is. I've been up there, but anyway, he tends to come here when I had this renovation done. I'd, he put this um, this door inside the inside my drum house. So I've got this internal door now, and he puts some extra double glaze and all that stuff. He just tends to come here and we have a chat. I tell him what I want me to do. He goes away and he comes back, and then he's got all the right things and just builds it. Um, so the shed down in the garden, I've been sort of designing this shed and trying to maximise the space, and that's involved digging, you know, uh, which is one of my least favourite activities. But, uh, but he's, you know, it's good for the old physical exercise. So, yeah, just been trying to sort of up the game a bit with the sort of physical exercise because um, I'm just not, you know, none of us are gigging, are we? Nobody's, I'm not not playing, which is something I would normally, you know, I don't do a great deal of playing like I used to, but I certainly, you know, I'm playing, um, you know, sometimes it's busy two or three times a week. Uh, but then, you know, I'm at work and, you know, obviously teaching and, doing what you do at work and going up and down stairs and things and seeing people and blah, 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 blah. And it's just this kind of lifestyle has been quite strange um, change, really, you know. Especially the thing of not gigging, there's the, the sort of social side of things that's not existing. Um, it's something that obviously, I mean, for everybody it's the same. Um, and it must be, I think, p- people at work, people that haven't been going to work maybe understand a little bit about what our lifestyle, musician's lifestyle is like when when you're very busy and you're that gigging life kind of musician and a lot of the social life tends to sort of be around playing, you know, and gigging and seeing the people that you, your friends and whatever when you're actually gigging. Um, and, yeah, it's everybody's now become kind of separated, haven't they, you know, and we're all doing things virtually um which i mean you know we've, we're so lucky to have that imagine what life would be like at the moment without it you know um if everything was you know all this kind of information when the government was just being communicated through well just the television or radio which would be very similar but on the outside of that information, on on the day to day life of things, and if you know, without the internet, without this kind of ability to be able to video conference and you Zoom and Team and Skype and FaceTime and all those different things, uh, WhatsApp and stuff, Messenger, all these different ways of, of basically communicating with people. Imagine what life would be like without all that at the moment. It would be. You know, it would be... I imagine it would be just be creative in different ways, you know. Um, the human race has been creative in those different ways for a long, long time, way before the you know, the internet existed and all that stuff. Uh, but, the you know, the, the, the advent of the internet and the kind of amount of information that that has brought to us and the way in which, like I've talked about many times, on this and talk about all the time with students stuff that the, the ability to have that information at the fingertips is really quite you know remarkable really but uh anyway this is like the most ill-disciplined beginning to any of the podcasts i was gonna i had a real clear um kind of 
not script today, but I, you know, I'd really, well, I'll tell you the story of today's podcast is, um, um, it begins with disappointment, sadly. Um, there's, no, there's no need to cry or anything, but um, I, today's podcast, as you can see from the title, is about drummers or some of the drummers that have, uh, that come immediately to mind and have interest, uh, influenced, sorry, me, not interested me, influenced me. Uh, all drummers interest me, but uh, there's um, a number of drummers that really influenced me and, and, and for various different reasons I'm going to talk about. And one of the things that I researched um, just to be sure was this thing about copyright and about playing uh, short clips on um, something that I was going to publish because I listen to a lot of podcasts and I watch a lot of YouTube um, and quite a lot of the um, quite a lot of the well the people that Blaze could play stuff on uh, do podcasts and have them on YouTube and on um, podcast um, you know uh, platforms I I listen I use Google um, podcasts by the way I, my my podcast isn't published on google podcasts because i can't work out how to publish it on google podcasts it's so complicated apple was really easy it was a slightly it was a little bit of a thing but it was you know it was really easy to get the rss feed thing to work spotify was super simple i don't even know how i did the spotify thing but it was like literally ticking a box i think then there's podomatic which is the platform i use to upload um that's Become, might become a bit of a problem soon because I've had this weird thing with Podomatic. They're really great. I think it's a great platform. Um, I think it's great that we support these, <clears throat> what could be seen as a, as a smaller platform than Google or Spotify or Apple, you know, these big, big players. Podomatic feels like a community vibe. It's got a community vibe about it. Um, well, they all have, but it, well, Spotify doesn't. I don't have anything to do with Spotify, to be honest with you. I don't, I don't have a Spotify account. I don't listen to Spotify. I don't have anything to do with Spotify. But that's just my personal choice. Um, it's mainly because it just doesn't work on um, any of my devices. It just doesn't do anything. Um, and the Apple thing, I don't have Apple Music or anything. So I have said before, I buy all my music now through, basically through... Uh, Amazon, if I'm buying CDs, uh, buy art by big artists. You know, I, I buy the, I buy the, the CD and get the digital download because I've got the app on my phone and stuff. And then I'll use the smaller, you know, companies like Bandcamp or CD Baby or whatever. You know, the ones that artists generally get more royalties for. Bandcamp still got really a great uh, model. I think they really nailed it. And, um, you know, long may they exist in their formats. I really genuinely hope that they, you know, are around forever, actually. Just to be, I think I've been able to upload, you know, and, and they just take, uh, I think the thing, I've, I've got a little bit of music on there. Um, I think it's changed. I, I just, I've kind of lost touch with it all, really. When I first put my music on there, they used to take the 10th sale. At the at the minimum set price. Um, now I think they just take 
a percentage of a sale and it's very it's a very very similar amount you know it's it's, it's very very it's very for the artist you know they they are they're not they don't feel like a greedy company to me um and Pod, and podomatic feels like that but the problem i got with podomatic is they they have been really nice to me so they upgraded various things for free i don't know why i just interacted with some of they post these things you get these little messages through and i just like interacted with the messages and sent some feedback and stuff and then i got kind of upgraded and i'm sure you know not being cynical here but i'm sure it's some kind of ploy to get you to keep you on the site and then you get to the position that i'm in now i'm at episode 22 um the episodes i do 128 kilobit sorry kilobyte uh mp3 so they're just they're just voice quality mp3s you know i don't want to go any lower than that i don't need to go any higher than that i feel like it's decent enough quality it's a free podcast isn't it, everybody let's face it nobody's paying for this stuff and god i wouldn't expect you to but um on the other side of it yeah you know if you're going to complain then uh <laughs> i don't know where you're going to ask for your money back because uh, you're not going to get any money back off me or off Podomatic, because neither of us are charging you anything for it. They're giving you a platform, well, they're giving me a platform to provide this content for anybody that wants to listen to it, and I'm grateful for anybody that listens to it. But uh, I'm nearly full with my storage. So, I, you know, I make my podcast here. I, I, I use Logic. Um, I used to do it on their platform, but the quality is not brilliant. This is better quality. I can run a bit of compression across the output, so the level is kind of pretty universal across the across. The, a lot of people who make their own podcasts, I listen to a lot of podcasts, and they listen to them in the car. I really struggle with the volumes because you get these big peaks, changes of volume, you know. And I'm hoping um, that mine don't do that because I run this. I just run one of the built-in compressors off in logic across across the channel just to make sure that um that i get a decent you know there's like a small amount of compression on the voice it just it boosts the output level of the quieter um, parts of me when i'm muttering or whispering and then when there's a loud bit like a big loud bit like that um or i cough or something it doesn't blow the speakers it just um there's a limiter uh, just below zero decibels on the output so um and that's uh, and i've also just tweaked a bit of the eq as well on the output so um yeah so that kind of yeah but i mean yeah i'm at this situation now with podomatic where i'm nearly out of room and so i was sort of contacted them and i was like saying how do i just i don't need any more bandwidth because i don't because it's you know not a lot of people listen to this so i don't i don't need the huge amounts of bandwidth which you get for free um it's like 20 gigabytes a week or something and if you're on 128 kilobit kilobyte sorry uh mp3 and <clears throat> you know i think my busiest week is like i don't know 90 people or something or 90 listens and um, that isn't all me, by the way. It's only, at least uh, only about 83 of them. No, no, seriously. Um, I think one of them will be me because I test it at the beginning and then that's it. I don't pay any attention to it after that. But I get these stats through and uh, look at the popular episodes. You know, the Brushes episode is still the most popular. No surprise in that the, uh, the Stuart McCallum uh, episode, which was two or three weeks ago, has quickly caught up to the Brushes episode. The Brushes was very early on and that's been the most listened to podcast still but the Stuart McCallum 
one from just a few weeks ago is 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 caught that up and is about to surpass it, I think. Um so but yeah, I'm I'm basically running out of room, so I just need a bit more room. Now the only thing you can do is you upgrade your package to a little bit more room and a little bit more bandwidth. And that's kind of the only option that I have, you know. I don't really need the bandwidth. I just need a bit more room. So I'm I'm trying to work out a solution to this problem because I don't want to change platforms because then I believe that uh, I'm going to struggle with the RSS side of it to, to basically syndicate it over to the to the other platforms where people listen to it. And I would like to get it on Google. It'd be great. Um, but because I use, that's the that's the platform I use, Google Podcasts. So, um, but anyway, I digress <clears throat> again. Um, so today's episode is this thing about drummers that have influenced me. And, and so as I was saying about this copyright problem, I've listened to people on these podcasts and... Uh, I listen to them on the Google podcast, but a lot of these people I listen to, they have their podcasts on YouTube and they're always referring on their podcast to this 20 seconds, playing a 20 second clip of somebody else's music, like the original music. And they always go, oh, we can play up to 20 seconds and it's fine and then it's whatever. And I was like, oh, okay. So I basically, I've got this list of drummers I wanted to talk about today. And I had in my mind, for each drummer, one or two very small 15 to 20 second clips that I was going to basically play. A bit like a radio show, really. Um, A bit like what I did last week with the drum solos, just interspersed the little clips. So you've got a bit of a reference to what was... uh, what was really inspiring to me because they're quite specific these these memories aren't they for any of us they, these memories are, are specific they're, they're a specific track even a specific thing on a track they are for me anyway and I'm, I'm sure I'm, I'm preaching to the choir with that I'm sure everyone else has very very similar experiences in, in respect of that um, but when I looked into it because I didn't want to I don't want to get sued by anybody can't be bothered with any of that stuff it's a pain in the ass, isn't it um, or asked to have something taken down, and then have to take it down, and it would be a nightmare. Because once you send a podcast out into the world and you go through the RSS feed and stuff, it's really quite complicated to sort of try and backpedal all that. <laughs> it's once you cross platform, and it's easy if you're on one platform because you just delete it and or you just re record it. But one of my early podcasts had loads of errors in the audio file. I did some editing on the audio file because I had a problem when I was recording it and I had to stop the recording and restart it. And I did this stupid thing on Logic where I resized one of the audio bits and it resized all of them, didn't check it. I blooming saved the thing, didn't listen to it, uploaded it to Podomatic, did all the description, did all the thing, saved it, published it, and it springs out, goes immediately out to you know to Spotify and everywhere. And then listened to it, and it was a nightmare. There was all these gaps in it. It was like so. That was a bit of a pain, but it actually seemed to write itself pretty quickly because I managed to uh, overwrite the source file, and it seemed to work with the uh, with with Spotify and with Apple. The it was very very quickly updated, but I didn't want to get a situation where I was going to have to re-record the whole thing. So. Um, I realise that I can't play anything on here, by the way. This is this is the whole point of this ramble, is that um, I wanted to play some clips and I can't. So 
it's not going to be quite as interesting as I hoped. So I was very excited about this episode. I was like thinking it's going to be great. I'm going to be able to share some of these little moments in music. So now all I'm going to be able to do is is share them with you and talk about it, but I'm not going to be able to play them. You'll have to go and find them yourself, which is no bad thing, and that's a choice you can make yourself. You either go, I can't be asked with that, or that's really interesting. Um, but basically, the place to start is the beginning. And the beginning is three British drummers. Um now, there's probably other drummers as well and other things that really uh, were interesting to me. But the main the main influence um, was, was three drummers because of the music that I was listening to at the time. I really got into playing the drums. I started playing the drums. Now, one early memory, which was before I played the drums, and I remember just having this thing about wanting to sort of... Um, you know, have a go of this of this thing was was. Does everyone remember Adam and the Ants stand and deliver? There used to be this line: of, "Stand and deliver your money or your life." Digga 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 digga. Hoi! And then it was like a kind of oh, some sort of oog oi thing. But there was these digga 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 hoi thing in the track, and it was actually it was actually a single that I actually had that single. And on the video, there was a couple of guys with big old sort of march big like big old tenor drums like marching tenor drums because you know they had them in the ants thing you know it was all it was all like kind of i don't know anything about history it was like a particular sort of era of history wasn't it the way they dressed and all that kind of stuff um and the drums were like that they were like animal skin tenor drummy kind of stuff oh just uh turn the phone down there sorry about that um so yeah uh, that was when I was, I reckon, must have been around, I don't know what year that was, eight, nine, ten years old, not sure. Anyway, I always really liked the drums on that track. Um, but I didn't start playing the drums until I was um, 12 years old. It was... Um, the Christmas, just after being 12, um, my mum and dad bought me a snare drum and a cymbal on a stand. This I've already told this story, but that was the beginning of it. In the February after that, I had appendicitis and I was off school for um, about a month and a half. Um, no, it was a month. And it was a really weird time because... Uh, it's one of those, it's like one of those things of where you when you when you're off school at that age it's such an intense thing school isn't it you know you're you're in school all the time and all your friends are there and it's just the, your whole world you know and uh, it was it, I ended up getting a little bit disconnected from from everything because I was at home and I had this appendix out and I was off school for a month um, and I didn't really do much schoolwork at home and I just, I just ended up falling behind a bit but the other thing that really happened during that time was drums you know so these two kind of things parallel things happened there was a sort of the distancing from the school and academic thing and then just sort of falling behind with stuff and suddenly like oh god i don't know what the hell's going on with any of maths and biology and all these and french i was very very good at french when i was 11 you know i was like top of the class in the first year 
And then by the end of, by the time I left comprehensive school to go to music school when I was 14, I was bottom of the class in French. But I was also, you know, doing very well with music. So it's just the, it's the personality of an obsessive, isn't it? Really? Let's face it, everybody. Um, that's what happens. So, I'd, but I had this thing of like, I was off, I had the appendix thing and I was off and I was getting into the drums. And then I started getting drum lessons, proper drum lessons, um, with, as I've said before, Max and Irene Molin, who lived near me, and that was great. Now, I had a band. I used to play with these um, these twins, the Powells, and uh, their older brother. Um, and uh, there was Andrew and David Powell, and their older brother, Alex Powell, who played guitar, and, uh, and then Andrew played bass, and uh, David played guitar. And they sang a bit as well and stuff. And that was my first band. And, and we pleased to play on off for, you know, um, quite a lot. And somewhere I've got, a, I have got a, um, I've got a CD of of us playing. Because uh, Andrew, very kindly, a few years ago, found me through Facebook. We'd we lost, lost, lost touch a long, 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 long time ago when I was maybe 15 or 16 years old. But he found me through um Facebook because he sort of discovered that I was it became a professional musician and all that stuff and blah blah blah, um, and he was kind enough to send me this amazing uh, CD of that period when we played together and I was twelve thirteen then I you know it sounded pretty good it was all right I was quite you know quite impressed um, I I just thought it was going to sound awful um, it was because. And I had this other experience of hearing myself uh, back a couple of years ago uh, when I was in when I was like twenty, and it sounded awful. So I was really expecting this stuff of me when I was like twelve to sound diabolical, and it was actually it sounded better than I did when I was twenty. Bizarrely, um, I mean it was simpler music and stuff, but I, I don't know. There's something there was just something more kind of organic and drummy about it. It had a kind of energy about it that I really liked, you know. Um, but around that time, we, uh, uh, me and Andrew ended up playing with a guy called Patrick Briscoe, who's still a musician. <clears throat> I'm not sure where Patrick lives now. I'm sure he's still around Manchester Way, but uh, he still writes and, and he's writing music. And he um, and he was like the lead singer and the guitarist, and Andrew was bass player, and, we, and I was I was playing drums, obviously. And we basically kind of thought that we were the jam, you know. And uh, <clears throat> so one of my early kind of influences was the jam and was Rick Butler, you know. Um, but <clears throat> so he, he was a great, you know, great player, Rick Butler, and he had really interesting drums and, <clears throat> and all that kind of stuff. But the the real thing, I think, was actually Paul Weller because... Uh, the jam split up and Paul Weller started a band with DCD called the Style Council <clears throat> with um, Steve White on drums. And I was thinking about drummers that really influenced me, you know, and I've been I've been lucky enough to meet Steve quite a few times and he's an absolutely diamond guy, beautiful guy, great player. Um, and he's great, Steve. He's a great educator as well. He's a proper, you know, he's like the real thing. He's the whole package. He's a great drummer and he's iconic drummer actually you know but he's also really down to earth and and uh you know you can have a good you know just a normal conversation and 
and uh, he loves teaching and sharing the knowledge and, you know, and he's just part of a real kind of what I call a British royalty of drummers, really. That's that's what I think. And, and when I was like 14, 15, um, I was really listening to the Star Council a lot. I was actually playing along to a lot of the records. Um, and I'd remembered that today because I was thinking that I'd written down Rick Butler and then Keith Moon. And actually, it was Rick Butler and Steve White and Keith Moon, really. These three very different but great British drummers, you know. Um, but the drummer that really did have a huge influence on me was Keith Moon. Um, and uh, so I was thinking today when I was doing this research about these clips and I found out I can't play the clips, but I was, there was two pieces of music that I wanted to, to kind of share with you. I mean, the jam thing is I'd just listen to anything by the jam. You know, if you want to hear that vibe. And it's the same with Style Council as well. There's just something... Because I was a bit of a mod, you know, and it, all those three bands, they kind of felt they were on the mod, not the rocker side of things, you know. Um, so, and obviously there was Quadrophenia, you know, the, the famous film, uh, the mods and the rockers thing and all that stuff that The Who made. But the the, the thing I'm going to talk about now... Well, these two, these, you don't get fooled again, which is an amazing, obviously amazing, you know, uh, iconic uh, rock tune. One of, one of their greatest tunes, I think, actually. Um, there's so many, though. It's just, just an amazing band. And, uh, but one of the, there's so many characterful things about that tune, but the, the one of the things that really sums it up for me, Keith Moon, is uh and even got even watched some uh versions of it live like there's one on youtube 78 um i can't remember where it is but you'll find it don't get fooled again 78 live and moon's got like headphones gaffer tape to his head you know um and he's miming on the drums at the beginning and then he's like uh and then he's like the groove starts, and there's like this weird thing in that that sort of bridge thing. Is it bridge or the chorus? The bit where uh, before he comes around to the top of the tune again, where he's playing this offbeat thing on with left hand on the toms and no backbeat. It's really strange, you know. Um, but it's brilliant. The thing I love about Keith Moon, and it's always stuck with me. It was definitely something that influenced me hugely in the way I play the drums and it, I've never been able to get away from it and it's just, it's like etched in, it's like something that's kind of etched in your soul and in your brain is the way he plays between melodic phrases just that thing of you get a melodic phrase and he's just playing through that, just playing underneath it, supporting it and then in the gap there's always something, he's saying something on the drums, you know it's like got this kind of counterpoint or whatever. Now, for some people, you know, they they're more of a Bonham, like just play straight through it, really, you know, straight up and down. I could definitely hear my influence towards jazz from from Moon, you know. Um, so go and check. Yeah, don't, you don't get fooled again. Go and check that out. Just uh, just the way the drums fit around. Uh, the structure of the song and the melody. But the other one, the other example I wanted to give you, it was um, one that's really stuck with me, and these are amazing fills 
from a very, it's quite a proggy bit of music that's in Tommy. So anybody who doesn't know Tommy the Rock Opera, it's a hilarious. Um, it's an incredible film, actually. If you watch it, they're just it's just unbelievable. Roger Daltrey is amazing in it. It's like um, just the way he plays this character. And uh, and I was watching this this clip today. It's at about forty seven minutes in, and it's an instrumental. Um, bit of music and it's basically when uh, Tommy kind of leaves the house in this weird kind of thing and he sees himself but you can see and he ends up in this junkyard on top of cars and then he uh, and the and the and the alter ego or whatever the other whatever it is I don't, know, I don't know what it is the other person that's him disappears and suddenly he's blind again and he starts falling all over the place and then this light appears again this and he suddenly you can see again and then he's playing the pinball machine um but if you check out that bit of the film the music is quite proggy uh, very early synthy uh it's mega but the drum fills they're amazing, like really, really amazing drum fills. Um, every single they've got these kind of stabs, and then it's like stab, stab, fill, fill, stab, 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 fill, fill, and they're all different. And some of them are like really intricate um, and amazing fills. And so you just got to kind of like when people think about Keith Moon, they think about this complete maniac, you know. And he was an absolute maniac. The guy was insane, you know, because um, all the stories are true. And there's that famous one that Roger Daltrey told again on Top Gear, you know, was the thing, you know, Jeremy Clarkson asked him, you know, is it true that he drove a Rolls Royce into a swimming pool? And, and Roger Daltrey said it was. And he was like, oh, and he said, well, what, what was remarkable about it was that the swimming pool was on the first floor. It's like, no, <laughs> How did he get this Rolls-Royce upstairs, you know, in the first place? It's like, this guy was off his head. And all the drugs and all that stuff and the craziness. But when you listen to his playing on on uh, on those albums, there's something magical about it that's, you know, that's like, it's beyond all that stuff. It's just really, you know, of the music, in the music. <clears throat> so yeah, definitely encourage you if you've not checked out Keith Moon to uh well just listen all to all of it really. Um and then I've talked about this before, is I had a friend called Vince Walton, who um was a long term friend of mine. I still know Vince a little bit. I've saw him a couple of years ago. Um he still plays. And Vince was I was always kind of the rocky Sorry, I was always the the jazzy rocky drummer, and Vince was always the rocky rocky drummer. Um, and we were both, you know, we spent a lot of time together when we were, you know, like third, twelve, thirteen, fourteen. We we're both in the brass band, and uh, he used to go to his house every night after school. And we used to play his drums and listen to music and stuff. And one of the, the bands that he got me into was Blood, Sweat, and Tears. And uh, I still think about it today of Spinning Wheel and, and Bobby uh, Columby's fill on that tune you know and it leads me to like my one of my most one of the most influential drummers on me um at that time was to buddy rich and and even buddy rich talks about that fill on spinning wheel 
He's, you know, Budrich didn't have much to say about many drummers, actually. It's quite funny. Um, I'm not sure whether that was really true in, in his in his real life, but the sort of the kind of facade side of it on the on the on the public life was this very kind of you know he was the world's greatest drummer and that was it. But um, I was reading some stuff about um, about spinning wheel and, and about this drum fill just yesterday, and I found this thing of Buddy Rich. Um, Said it was one of the you know one of the greatest breaks in uh, in rock drums you know, and and it's true. There's something about that drum fill. So if you let's go if no if you never heard Spinning Wheel the original, uh, go and listen to it after after the there's the big brass break thing. And then there's this drum fill. I'm not going to sing it to you. I want you to go and hear it. It's just got the most amazing vibe in it. It's really, really like you can hear the musician uh, in Bobby in that fill. That's so clever because uh, it's beautiful musical fill. It's like iconic. It's so memorable. It's so cheeky, um, and it's perfect. It's just all those different things and uh, real character, you know. Um, and also, it's got like musical answers in it. I think it's because it's got, it's just got all these different quintessential things about understanding, like the orchestration and the, and the voicing of a fill, and then the, the 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 thing of of flirting with interesting subdivisions all of a sudden. It's just all these different things. I think it's just a masterpiece of like one bar, you know. Um, so. But that does lead me on to Buddy Rich, which is great because Buddy Rich was obviously... I've told this story already on one of the early podcasts when when I was uh, getting into um, learning the drums properly. I was When I was, I was studying with Irene Molin, um, bizarrely, who messaged me today out of the blue um, about something. She had... Um, in fact, it's quite funny, actually, because Irene taught me to play traditional grip, which I still play and... Uh, um, but I have been practising, as you know, a lot of match grip over the last seven or eight years. And like today, I've been practising match grip again. I've spent quite a lot of time over this weekend doing some match grip stuff. Um, but I still play traditional grip and it's still my go-to um, grip for lots of different things. Um, but she... I. I posted something on uh, online and, and it had gone on to Facebook, I think cross-posted from Instagram or something because she's not on Instagram. And she, she made this comment because I was playing Match Grip and it just said, what's going on with that left hand, you know? Um, which is definitely like, she's saying, why are you not playing traditional grip, you know? Um, and I've not managed to reply to it, say, don't worry, I'm still playing traditional grip a lot. Um, but it's 50-50 now nowadays because it was a hundred percent and buddy rich it was irene and buddy rich were the two people um that really got me into traditional grip you know uh i remember talking to pat briscoe i was talking a minute ago when we had our, our band with andrew powell you know and i said to patrick you know when i was um like 13 or whenever i was 12 or 13 13 14 13 probably I'm going to play traditional grip, you know. 
and I remember him looking at a picture of Alice Budwich album live at Ronnie Scott's and I remember him looking at the picture and the the, le- the the picture's got his left hand. You can see his left hand with traditionals. You know, he's like, well, you know, if that's good enough for him, it's good enough for you, isn't it? You know, and uh, and I was like, yeah, yeah. It's not going to, you're not going to make me, you know, be make me any less of a rock drummer. But it's just I'm going to play like that. And then if you go back with the traditional grip thing, you go back to the '60s. All those players on those records, those American Motown players, and all that. They were all traditional grip players. They didn't play. They didn't play. I mean, rim shot hell, tuned up high snare drums, rim shot in every single backbeat. They played trad grip. They played straight up and down, gentle, nice, fat, low end snare. You know, and um, tasty, tasty, buttery hi hats. You know, and uh, and yeah. So there's nothing. There's nothing ungroovy about the traditional grip thing. Um, but anyway, I digress. But it was the Buddy Rich thing and, and, and Irene were the two things that really got me into, sort of got me, inspired me to play traditional grip, you know. Um, but I was just going to mention, there's so many things with Buddy Rich, I can't even, I don't even know where to start. But what I would say is I, I very early on, I got bought an album called Man From Planet Jazz that my mum and dad bought me. And that was a very, very wise um, Christmas present. It was one of the greatest Christmas presents that I've ever um, had and uh, changed my life completely because that album was the start of where I am now. It's where I still am, you know, really, playing playing music that's essentially in, in, the, in the kind of uh, the tradition or the essence of jazz, you know. Whatever it is, whether it's rock influence or fusion or folk or country, or whatever, there's always a background of jazz. Um, and I think that jazz is like that anyway in in respect of its function, because jazz, you know, jazz is a is a way of approaching music more than than music itself. I think there's a great interview with um, with Wayne Shorter. Um, on YouTube, I think it's at the Monk Institute or something, I can't remember. It's really, really hard to decipher a lot of it. It's pretty out there. He's very existential. It's quite heavy. But there's a great bit in it where he talks about the jazz bee flying between all the different flowers that are all the different musical styles and, and it goes in goes to the folk flower it goes to the country flower it goes to the rock flower it goes to the funk flower whatever and the the, the bee just it, it it pollinates and it and it takes something from the little flower and and it's this this idea of of uh of sort of cross-pollination in, but in a very natural way and of having that kind of that sort of beautiful, natural, gentle influence, you know. And I really like that idea. Because um, I realise, you know, a lot of people, and probably not a lot of people listen to this, or, you know, probably nobody listens to this anyway, but anyone who listens to this probably does have some sort of affinity with jazz anyway. But jazz isn't really a, a music that's universally loved, you know, which I find very sad. Um, uh and a lot of people say it's because of you know it's a victim of itself because it's self-indulgent music you know and it's not self-indulgent music you know people play this music like they play any music so you're just talking about self-indulgent people 
And, you know, what's wrong with being self-indulgent? It's nothing wrong with with somebody just tripping out and doing their own thing. If somebody else wants to listen to it and enjoy it, then it's been shared and it's a nice vibe, then that's just a positive thing, isn't it? If you don't like it, you don't listen to it. It's like anything. I don't listen to anything I don't like. I have zero tolerance for things and stuff or whatever, bullshit and anything. I just can't be arsed with it. Well, number, firstly, because it's, you know, it's disrespectful to the thing to pretend, I always think, you know. So I think, you know, just having that, that sort of great degree of honesty in anything is actually a very positive thing. And, and I think a lot of jazz really does have that. Um, even you know, the, and the free you know the free stuff in jazz. People, some people say it's kind of insincere, you know, or it's it's kind of not from it's not from a place of a tradition or a canon. Um, and I think that you know, if people are trying to express themselves and trying to explore uh, a sound world or a rhythmic world or whatever. In 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 a way in which where their head is at that time, then it's kind of so be it. You know, you you don't have to listen to it, uh, and I I definitely don't listen to anything that I don't really enjoy. You know, so um, well the jazz thing is, you know, it's difficult because a lot of people are not that into jazz. So I was you know even at this young age, I was talking today uh, to a friend of mine. Um, we were talking about. Um, getting into weird music uh, when we were younger. And uh, a friend of mine, Murph, Chris Murphy, who's a, we do a lot of driving together and other things, and Chris is really into music, and I know he listens to this occasionally. Hello, Chris, if you're listening. Um, we were talking about that thing of being like that awkward age of 13, 14, 15 or whatever, and realising that we're into like really weird music. In, in our kind of peer group, you know. And so I had this really strange time where I was like hanging out with Vince a lot and Vince was really into lots of very, he got me into, you know, Blood, Sweat and Tears and, and lots of other sorts of music, you know, really interesting music and he had a great record collection and stuff. Um, but we were a household of the top 40, you know, and, and I loved it. We used to listen every Sunday night. We used to sit, my dad used to used to record the top 40 on cassette uh, I used to do the pauses when the news and thing came on. You know, I was like running the kind of, I, I was pretending I was the DJ, you know, I was like the top 40 DJ. I was pressing pause and, and, then, and then pressing pause again to start the recording again. Um, <laughs> that was all I was doing, pretending to play the keyboard on the top of the record player, taking the lid off the, key, off the record player and pretending it was a keyboard and pretending I was Rick Waitman or something, you know, or Keith Emerson or whatever. Um but as a family, we sat around and we listened from 40 to 1, you know. And it was a great thing. Uh, and so that was like, that was what I'd call the spine of Britain musically, you know. Thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of families were doing that every Sunday night. And what I realised, and what me and Chris were talking about today, was that there was a point where we were, I mean, he was maybe me doing, doing that as well. We were maybe at different ages, but because um, when it was sort of nearly ten, eight years of difference in age, I'm a bit, I'm older. Um, but that thing of like, I suddenly realised I was listening to all that music with a family on a Sunday night and enjoying it, but I was also listening to all this weird music. And Buddy Rich was the big one, and basically, I was that was when I was fourteen. 
I auditioned to go to music school uh, to Cheetham's School of Music in Manchester. I auditioned um, and at 14 I went there for my what we call fourth year at comprehensive school. I don't know what that means now in, 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 the, in the school system now. I don't know if it's year seven or nine. I have no idea. I don't know anything about it. I don't have any kids, so I have no kind of connection to that to that vibe. But basically, when I went to Cheatham's in the uh, autumn of uh, 85, um, I was suddenly, like the music that I listened to, what I was practicing along to and trying to play like and stuff I was suddenly like really interesting so from being at comprehensive school where I was basically a leper musically you know I was um people just thought I was a freak I mean the thing I was when I was at comprehensive school um my brother who's a couple of years older than me was uh my brother was a bit of a tough guy you know um he was you know he was uh he was a tough guy and uh and i i ended up getting a bit of a reputation for being that as well uh, just just sort of the, about the age of sort of 13 or something um but i wasn't really into that kind of vibe but i just ended up i don't know you know you end up being a bit of that so when i went to music school i was kind of a bit of a scally really i suppose um in that circle it was quite a posh school you know just a lot of kids from lots of different backgrounds but most of them were not working class backgrounds like i was from they were from middle what was very kind of um simply at that time i think in in the uk was there was a working class and middle class and upper class it was it was less blurred boundaries than it is now or, or became in the 90s you know um because of the sort of the change in politics and the sort of change in mobility of money and when you know how access to money and stuff changed kind of society and the working class um you know uh, moved the, the the breadth of the working class changed um, but you know I was from a family with no car we didn't have a motor car um be, simply because we couldn't afford one you know uh, my dad worked all the hours God sent. My mum had two jobs, you know. Um, and we, you know, me and my brother, we didn't ask for very much and we didn't have a lot. We lived in a nice house, in a nice estate. We moved away from, you know, where we were born in Salford, in Swinton, where, you know, things definitely became, definitely changed in the 80s in Swinton and the early 90s. It became, I think, somewhere that, that I feel quite grateful to, you know, to have not had to grow up there. No, you know, there's no, no disrespect to anybody that did, but it was just, I feel like my dad made a decision um, to move, basically, uh, as I was describing earlier, to literally the other side of Manchester. Because my dad liked the hills, you know, which, are, which I, I do, my brother does as well. And really, we, we're sort of definitely got this kind of affinity with the countryside. And, and the sort of Swinton thing and the, the Salford thing was not, didn't really didn't really have that opportunity so my my dad had this idea of moving us over there you know so and it was kind of like uh when i went to yeah when i went to music school and i was 14 i was suddenly sort of living in the middle of manchester i boarded i moved away from home so i never really went home again until uh, i was maybe 21 when i moved away from london I hated london and uh, came back to live up north and sort of had to sort of rebuild my life again but 
Um, but suddenly I was like living back in this urban kind of environment, um, which was kind of cool. And uh, I really loved living at school. It was great. I had a great time um, because I got to basically practice and play jazz for four years and study music and, you know, lots of other things. But I was, I was really lazy with the rest of it. I was just into what I was into. But I was musically quite interesting to uh, lots of the pupils there because the thing that I realised as I grew up, because uh, I grew up around a lot of classical musicians and I still have contact from time to time with classical musicians, and the thing that I notice about classical musicians, uh, especially working classical musicians that play in pro orchestras, is they have this kind of weird relationship with music where they go and they're amazing readers. They just go and read and they play and it's very jobby-jobby, you know. They go and do a job as soon as... It's very union as well, so, you know, the rehearsal will last for one hour 45 and then they will have a 30-minute break. They will not play a minute longer than that, you know, that hour and 45 and they will not come back a minute earlier than that. Everything's bang on time. It's all It's all done to, you know... And that's great. I, I do some stuff very occasionally with an orchestra in Manchester. Uh, it's involved in a project that I sort of play. In, but I also do a little bit occasionally playing when they do film music nights when they need a kit player and uh, someone who can read. And, uh, yeah, it's like uh, it's like a really funny thing that they have this really, really jobby relationship with the music that they play. But when you get talking to classical musicians, especially because I'm not a classical musician, I come into that environment now as a, as a as a as a bit of a freak, really. You know, as a as a, as a jazz musician, as a drum kit player, um, and you're definitely not. You know, you're, you're sort of socially not kind of connected to anybody in the orchestra, apart from the percussion section, which is you know I normally go out for tea with and stuff and all that kind of malarkey. But um, when you get talking to them about music and jazz. A lot of them become very animated, you know, and they have they have this kind of sort of they love this idea of of people that can like make music out of nothing and not read music and to make music, you know what I mean? So um, I always had this very interesting relationship with classical musicians, and that was exactly what it was like at Cheatham's. I was surrounded by like amazing young musicians; they were incredible prodigies, you know that had amazing technical ability, amazing, they're so intelligent and uh, this ability to practice for hours and very disciplined and all that kind of stuff. And I was just this like scally drummer just flailing about and having a bit of a laugh and playing along to Buddy Rich records and playing long drum solos and, and just expressing myself, you know, playing pretty free really, just being a bit of, a, a bit of an idiot. Um, but for some reason... You know, people really like that kind of vibe. So when I so when I got to sort of school and and I was into this Buddy Rich thing and all this kind of music, I actually felt like I wasn't a freak anymore, um, which was great. Um, but I was very very fortunate um, around that time because I was kind of I'd had some little hints of the small group jazz thing, and there's two drummers particularly I wanted to just talk about briefly now. Um, that anyway that kind of got me thinking about this world of the small group player um, now one of them is Joe Morello and no it isn't take five and uh, obviously that's an iconic thing and it's amazing and all that stuff and I I was very lucky at once to play with Dave Brubeck's son Darius 
and I played take five with him, you know, um, blah, 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 which was very, very strange and had to play the solo, you know. Did my own solo, obviously, but... Um, but if you can find this version of Sea Jam Blues with the with the Brubeck Quartet, it's actually just a trio. Um, there's no sax on it, it's, and it's very fast. Now I used to listen to an album that I bought called the. It's called King of Drums, um, and it's just like one of these weird compilation albums that were doing the rounds. There used to be loads of these albums that were like. Like like the drum battle albums, you know, and all those sort of... I mean, those drum battle records were always so disappointing, you know. I remember ordering them and they're just like, they were just terrible. Um, but but I was listening to, yeah, the, those sort of albums at the time. Yeah, there's a great version of CG and Blues with Brubeck uh, and Morello. It's very fast and he plays this beautiful long drum solo on it. It's really beautiful solo. So if you can get to listen to that, I'd really recommend it. Uh, one of the Buddy Rich albums I was going to talk about after the Man from Planet Jazz was this was this live at Ronnie Scott's in seventy one I think it is and it's with that band the band that he had from sixty six to seventy five which I think was his greatest band um, and there's a tune on that album called Dancing Men anybody that knows that album will know that tune um, it's just. It's one of those tunes where it's got all that Buddhism. There's another one there as well called Time Being. It's a very, quite a long tune. And uh, it's got, like a lot of these Buddha Rich things have these kind of multi-dimensional tempo things going on in these tunes. You know, they had a half and a double timey thing and then some kind of swingy division thing in them where it would go into a swing thing at the tempo, you know. And uh, and the time being thing, if I remember rightly, has that, that dimension. It starts with, it's got this very, very fast uh, hi-hat thing. It's uh, really, really quick. Um, and then it's, uh, yeah, got all these different, yeah, it's a really interesting piece of music. But the Dancing Men thing is a really, it's a really nice tune, you know. It's a really bouncy piece of music and it's quite rocky and it's kind of got that, when Buddy Rich was, he's sort of very, very busy, rocky playing, which just reminded me of Moon, you know. It was like an amazing version of Keith Moon. And that was why I liked it, because it was just these these melodies with lots of drums and loads of left hand going on, you know. So, um, so yeah, the Morello thing as well. Then just, so another thing that really uh, influenced me... Um, on British television at that time, so we're talking the mid-80s, there was hardly any jazz on the television at all. Channel 4 was the only... Um, a BBC 2 occasionally, actually, but, but Channel 4 was the real trailblazer, in my opinion. Channel 4 was quite a radical channel when it first started out. It had some pretty racy kind of stuff on it, a bit naughty, you know, late-night sort of stuff that was a bit uh, risque, shall we say. But it also had, you know, uh, some left-field music. And uh, I've still got on VHS cassette, uh, which you can see on YouTube now. You, you can find this easily on YouTube, and I'll just I'll tell you, I'll give you sort of uh, uh, the information to find it. Uh, I've still got on this uh, VHS cassette this Johnny Griffin Quartet from the Village Vanguard in 82 with Kenny Washington on drums and 
Kenny was, you know, he was quite young then. I don't know how old he was, but I remember videoing this thing, uh, and it's really, really fast blues on this first track. And it's great. They, they do the on the exchange solos. It's fours and eights on the twelve bar, you know. So Griffin just plays four bars and Kenny plays eight bars. It's fucking mega, you know. It's, no one does that on the blues. And that's my favourite way of soloing on blues. Four and eight, you know. It's like you get the you get set up with the four bars and you've got the eight bars of space. It's like mega. But, um, yeah, if you go on YouTube, sadly you won't find the whole gig on YouTube, I'm afraid. Um and it's a real shame. That first tune on there, the blues is on there. Um, and then there's a great tune later, which I think he's even quicker, and he plays a lot of it on brushes. He does this brilliant solo with brushes. But I just remember being mesmerised, because this was the small group thing, and I was like, what is this vibe, you know, like playing like this? Because he had this kind of virtu- virtu- virtuosity of Buddy, but it was a completely different sound world. And it felt like there was even more space, but opportunity, you know. Uh, sorry, well, the space creates opportunity, doesn't it? But it's, it's whether or not, you know, how you choose to fill it. But the music just had more space because it wasn't big band music, you know. And my, my thing was I was going to be a big band drummer. That was what I was going to do, you know. That was my destiny. And then one thing changed everything. And the hints of that were these, were this, was this Morello uh, CGM Blues thing on this record and the Kenny Washington thing. Um, but the thing that really changed everything, and there's one reason why this changed everything, and I've talked about this before, was when I was at school, I was in a dormitory with um, a guy called Stephen Gosling, who's a phenomenal musician. Uh, I've talked about this guy before, and he's he, Steve works at the Juilliard now. He's a Juilliard accompanist. Um, he's absolutely incredible musician. He was an amazing transcriber. He had perfect and relative pitch. He just had this amazing musical brain, you know. And Steve got me into Jarrett, and I'm forever grateful to Steve for this because um, he had. Uh, and I've told this story before, but he had his, he had uh, he was from a nice background. He, he lived in a nice area of Sheffield and stuff. And his dad was an architect and travelled the world. And um, very interesting guy. And uh, and he bought Steve um, these albums from abroad and he travelled abroad and stuff. And uh, it was Steve that played me. Standards one, um, God bless the child with Jack Dijonette. And this was this tune was the thing that changed everything for me. Um, because I never listened to Buddy Rich again after this. Uh, it was literally the, the switch went off, you know. I just, I mean, the one of the things was, was Jarrett. Because I've always loved piano and I've always loved songs and I've always loved the sort of lyricism within music and and all that stuff, you know, it's kind of obvious. And uh, and so, you know, some of the other drummers I'm going to talk about in a minute all link into kind of players or musicians that they work with that have that quality about the way they play. Um, But also, just this drumming, I'd never heard anything like it because... 
uh, if you've never heard that track, um, go and listen to it. It's it's on ECM. It's the first standard. Well, it's not actually the first standards trio album. Tales of Another is actually the first standards trio album. Well, that's actually a Gary Peacock album from '78, I think. And it's the it's that trio. It's Jarrett, Dijonette, and Peacock, but it's actually under Gary's name. And uh, um, the trio then didn't do anything for a few years, and then the trio in eighty, whenever it was eighty two or whenever it was, started up and recorded these albums, these standards one, standards two, an album called Changes. They're all done in the same session. But anyway, that lit the fire for me. And if you listen to that album, the last, I think it's the last track on the album, um, it's called God Bless a Child. And it's like a funky, groovy thing. And so it was just this like amazing link between the world I'd come from, this rocky world, this Keith Mooney, busy, rocky thing, through the Buddy Rich jazz sound with all that swing and that complicated, amazing music and epic, whatever. And then into this really intimate, small trio sound that was just so beautiful and groovy, but had that jazz kit sound. And on that album, I think I'm pretty sure it's the sonor uh, lights... Uh, it might be highlights actually, but it's that area. It's the main thing about it is it's that eighteen sort of bass drum sonar highlight or light bass drum, and then the Istanbul cymbals. Um, and I think it's recorded. I think now it's uh, Rainbow Studios in Oslo. I think. Um, but any of the ECM studios that Jack recorded in with that with those kits always sounds amazing, you know. Um, but the symbols, there's just everything about it, the symbol sound, the sort of earthiness, the smoky vibe of the drums. And I remember just, that was it for me, that was the sound, but I was like, how am I ever going to f- get to that sound? There's so many barriers, you know. Um, one is it's Jack, obviously, which is a massive barrier because he's just amazing and uh, I'm not, so... That was obviously, you know, a non-starter for a thing. But there's all sorts of other things. That, there's just the, the thing, like the thing of the financial side of being able to afford to buy those drums. They were unattainable in the eighties. You know, even in the early nineties, when I bought my first proper drum kit in in nineteen ninety one, um, I was I had some money. My uh, grandparents, my grandmother died in 19, and my grandfather died not long after. And uh, they left. Uh, the distribution of the money was mainly to my dad and my auntie. But um, my cousin, me and my brother got some money as well. And one of the, the things my granddad was always adamant about, which took me a long time to get round to, and my, my brothers never got round to it, but was... <coughs> excuse me, learning to drive and buying a car. I chose to spend that money on buying a drum kit, a proper drum kit, and didn't do the car thing. I, I did have driving lessons, but I just never got to learn. They just Because um, we didn't own a car, you can never practice, you know. If you're trying to learn to drive and you haven't got a car to practice in, it's so expensive. You just don't get the hours in the car. And then if you've never had a car in the family... And you've never had that kind of experience of 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 just having the opportunity to go out with you with you know with anybody in your family and have a go at driving. 
So it was just, um, took me a long time to learn to drive, uh, sadly. Um, but I bought a drum kit, very nice. And I was trying to buy Sonos and it was just financially impossible at that time in the UK, you know. Um, I bought a DW kit and it was a beautiful, it was made in 89 or 90, it was Keller Shells. It was a really good period for DW. Um, and I bought this kit from a distributor. I got in touch with uh, through uh, a mutual friend um, who helped me out. I went down to distribute, and this was just at the start of the recession, so that you know they were really wanting to sell stuff. They were on their ass. Um, and retail wise, I was looking at the Sonor equivalents. Um, I, I was actually after a twenty-inch bass drum. Actually, I was I was looking for the sort of the 10, 12, 14 sizes and the 20 bass drum because it was a bit more versatile because uh, just because of the music and stuff I was playing at the time. But ideally, I'd have, I'd have had the 18 and the 20, but that's, that's you know, it was never an option. Bizarrely, now I have um, three <laughs> bass phonics, you know, an 18, 20 and a 22, you know. So um, anyway, that's another story. <laughs> Um, beautiful, beautiful drums. I've got, I've, I'm, you know, feel very lucky now. I finally got, especially the 18. The 18 just reminds me of Jack when I play it. It's very playable bass drum. I feel like I can actually play that bass drum. Um, but at that time, yeah, it was like way out of my league financially. And I ended up getting this, this DW kit, which I got at trade. And it was still very expensive, but it was affordable, you know. And I'd never been able to buy that. That kit in the shops was was nearly twice the money uh, when I was going around music shops trying to get a quote. So, um, so yeah, there was this whole like journey of trying to get to Jack's sound, which um, which never happened until this year when I bought these drums. Um, and and now it's really not important to me, and because I'm not really into that thing now. But it's so ironic that I've ended up closer to that now than ever um so yeah the jack the jack thing was a big big thing uh big big thing so you know lots of great albums that i'd recommend with the with the, with the jarrett trio obviously but a really influential album for me and uh me and a, an ex-student of mine called steve hanley great drummer steve who, who still loves up in leeds um we talk about his album if we get a chance to check, check out drums um, and he can always hear the influence in things I write. There's an album called Parallel Realities. Now, Parallel Realities, one of the reasons why I love this album so much was it, it was actually a Jack um, Dijonet album, I think, um, the band. But really the band was Jack, Pat and Herbie Hancock. Pat Metheny, Herbie Hancock. And no bass. Jack did all... The album's all programmed Korg synth bass. Um, it's a very interesting album. It was very much where my head was at the time. So if anybody, if you've not listened to last week's episode 21, have a listen to that episode and the the sort of very dated sounding drum solo at the beginning of the podcast. Um, people can really hear the influence of the parallel reality sort of thing and all that. Because I was like basically trying to create this kind of electric, electronic music-y 
platform for playing drums with sequences because I'd seen this John Sermon gig with with Dijonet. I talked about it all that last week. I'm not going to go into it again now. You check out last week's episode. Anyway, um, but the Parallel Realities band, yeah, big influence upon me. When they toured it, Dave Holland played bass. Um, and he plays great on that gig. He plays, he plays a lot of electric, and he sounds brilliant on the electric. Uh, it's not something I'd ever seen him do, but he's such a virtuosic double bass player, but um, he sounds great on that gig on electric. Um, so, yeah, the Parallel Realities, I love the, that band, that, 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 that album, the studio album that they made. It's got some great tunes on there, really beautiful writing. And the thing about it is that... Um, is you could really hear that him and Pat were at work very closely on the compositional side. And this brings me to... I don't want to go away from Jarrett, actually. Let's... let's. I'm going to save the Pat thing. No, to, no the Pat Matheny thing... Uh, I got really into Danny Gottlieb. So anyone's not heard Danny Gottlieb, Danny Gottlieb was in the original Pat Matheny group with Lyle and Mark Egan. And... Uh, Again, another piano player that I... He's probably maybe the most influential musician on me, Lyle Mays, who sadly just died um, a few months ago. Absolutely tragic. He was only 66. Really, really, really sad. I can't believe that Lyle's um, no longer with us. He had stopped gigging. He'd given up the gigging life. He'd got sick of it. He's a, he's a great if you sort of if you rummage around on the internet Lyle May's interviews you'll find an interview where he talks about it quite explicitly it's very interesting um, uh, it's not a depressing conversation but it's really you know for a band he was the Matheny group was the biggest jazz band in the world at one point it was you know huge huge thing touring all over the world and what have you. And and the fact that, you know, Lyle Mays ended up in this situation where, you know, he he sort of, he'd stopped touring and gigging because, frankly, financially, it was just not worth doing it. It was, it was you know, there was no way of really making a living out of it under his own name. I found that very sad. Um, but he had another string to his bow, uh, Lyle. He was a polymath, a superbly, you know, intelligent, highly intelligent, human being and uh and people that are in the know you know you'll know his relationship with spectrosonics and i think they call, that's what they're called and, and this um this virtual synth called omnisphere and that company he was a programmer for that company and is an amazing synth programmer um and just you know one of those kind of brains really so he had that side of things in his life as well which i think was probably you know, fulfilling. And the thing about Lyle that I always loved and when you listen to him interviewed is he always talked about himself as a composer before a piano player. You know, the composition. He played the piano to compose. And uh, and I just always, when you listen to the, his improvising, when, he, when you hear him with his own group, there's lots of great footage out there with his own quartets with Peter Erskine and you know, this Mark Walker, this great drummer from Chicago. Um and uh, Bob Shepard and and yeah the, the the Lyle Quartet there's loads of different stuff brilliant compositions his soloing is always so compositional so melodic and memorable you know very much like Matheny but Matheny's thing is very different because it's this incredible vocabulary that he's created of his own you know 
um, just so recognisable and uh, remarkable, really, that somebody is able to have that that ability to create this their own vocabulary that's so strong and identifiable and and use it over. I mean, I don't know, you know, from go back to Bright Size Life, ECM, what is it, 78 with Jacko, Bob Moses. Amazing. Just, it's just a, Matheny's just an amazing musician, human being. What an incredible, it's just, uh, if you really map the projects and the people he's worked with and whatever, it's like, a, like incredible, really. But anyway, um, I was really into that early Matheny group, particularly. Albums like Travels, it's a beautiful, beautiful album. Very, very, um, just a warm vibe with the album, you know. Um, and and like American Garage, you know, that very early Matheny Group album. It's mega. It's just got, just, yeah, just just a vibe on, on that record. Um, and again, it's something very rocky about Gottlieb, you know, it's just something rocky about him, really groovy and, yeah, um, amazing technician, this incredible, like, player. And then, you know, Matheny, um, Gottlieb got replaced by Paul Wertico, um, another amazing drummer, kind of underrated in my opinion. I, I mean, I don't think about people that know, but... Um, Never kind of, I'd never felt like he's got the recognition he deserves, really, because he's actually a very free player, you know, uh, were to go. You listen to him on Matheny's gig, he's like the ultimate professional, you know, his incredible ability to part play on such a high level. Um, but as an improviser, he's like mental, you know, he's like, like really out there. So he's quite an interesting, interesting player. Um, and of course, then, uh, the next kind of incarnation of that band and then where Matheny's moved to now with his own project. Antonio Sanchez has kind of come into that, who again, you know, like Sanchez, what can you say about this guy? This guy's just on another planet um, in so many ways, you know. It's the, the thing with Sanchez is the rhythmical understanding and the technique. I just... Um, it's just the coordination and it's just mind-blowing you know um but yeah so the Matheny things was really important to me and I just had this kind of I always felt like I had this very strong relationship when in my younger days with with piano players lead piano players so like Jarrett and Lyle um particularly they were really you know piano players that I was really into wasn't as much into Chick career and Herbie and people uh amazing players but just it was Jarrett and Lyle for me. There's something about the lyricism of the way they play that I always, you know, kind of connected with me. And I was very into the solo concert stuff that Jarrett did. I used to kind of listen to that more than the band stuff. But Jarrett also had this European quartet and the American trio, which became the quartet. So there's two of the really important drummers to me that I listened to a lot, but I was really listening to Jarrett, you know, it was Jon Christensen, again, who's just sadly died um, not that long ago. And, uh, I mean, I've already talked about him in a previous podcast, but just, again, this incredible um, 
like individual take on on jazz playing. So you can kind of hear this lineage, your sort of Tony Williamsy kind of lineage, but this this straight thing about it, and this Scandinavian thing, this European thing, whatever you want to call it. The way I look at it is, it's like swing played straight. So it's all the same sort of phrasing, but without without being swung. You know, very funky, amazing sound world. Jan Christensen. If you listen to that album, there's a band called Solstice with Ralph Towner and Eberhard Weber. I think I was talking about this in, in, um, very recently in one of the other podcasts. Anyway, check that out. It's amazing. This one, as I said before, it's the drum sound of the gods, in my opinion. You know, anybody who knows that, particularly that first track, I think on that album, uh, I'm trying to remember the name of it now. Um, well, just check out the albums. You know, you'll you'll hear it. It's just amazing. Um, but the other, the other track that really stuck in my mind uh, was this tune called "The Wind Up." which was on this album, Belonging. Um, there was two great albums that, that sort of that everybody was listening to at the time. Um, there was one called Belong. The band was called Belongings or Belonging, I think, or Belongings. Um, and then there was My Song. So uh, My Song had My Song on it, that beautiful ballad um, and country, Questar, um, great tunes. And then Belonging had, um, I always thought it was the more like the kind of the pop album <laughs> of the two. My song was the jazz album, and because uh, Questar like, and uh, Country just have this vibe about them that's really, yeah, jazzy and that sound. And then Belonging has this, as like Spiral Dance and The Wind Up, and as long as you know you're living yours, you know. Um, you check those tunes out. But the wind-up particularly has got this vibe of, you want to hear sort of straight playing with jazz phrasing, that's the tune, in my opinion, you know. A couple of other great albums as well, one called New Dance, um, Nude Ants or New Dance, whichever way you want to play it. I think it's Nude Ants on the cover. Um, And Personal Mountains. Um, It's got one of my favourite Jarrett piano solos on the album uh, on Prism. It's a staggering solo. Um, yeah. And the way Pally Danielson plays that melody on that is incredible. On double bass, that really, really hard melody. Um, so, Jon Christensen, yeah, and uh, Gottlieb. But then also Paul Motion, because I was listening to the Jarrett American quartet which was a bit of a weird thing record company wise because they had like he like had two record deals at the same time he was on um he was on ecm obviously so like personal uh sorry um not personal mountains the survivor's suite one of my favorite jarrett albums is a um, ecm album and it's with Drew redmond motion and hayden um and it's a two two sweet thing it's mega um but he was also, I think it was, I think he was on Impulse Records as well, and a lot of the American quartet stuff is on Impulse. Um, so I recommend that. And then there was just the thing, Paul Motion. Uh, it he's just like no other drummer. There's no other. I can't. I don't really have words to describe. Um, can't really talk about it because it's all. 
the, you, know, you know, actually, I've said this before, but the closest drummer, if we're talking about drummers, and it's just, it's a musical thing, it's a musical environment, but the instrument is specific, but is Brian Blade, you know. Um, and also, another drummer, this might be a bit controversial, but this is the way I see it, and this is, this is just uh, a view... Um, that comes from this kind of attitude of what I call blank canvas attitude is Vinnie Colliuti, you know. Because um, the thing about, like, the thing about Blade and Paul Motion is that they never play, they never played or play the same tune the same way ever. It always, it's just always different. Um, I mean, you could probably say that about lots of players, but I always like the thing with Paul Motion. Um, I remember when I was very lucky enough a few years ago to play with an amazing piano player called Enrico Pierinunzi. Um I played with him a couple of times, uh, did a couple of very short tours with him with my good friend Pete Turner playing bass. And, uh, and it was a wonderful musical experience because Enrico is... Uh, genuinely a world-class player and uh and also you know his the company he's um been amongst um speaks volumes about his um you know uh, the, the regard in which he's held and he's played with two of my favorite ever drummers one was paul motion the other one's joey barron um and again joey barron is that, I mean, I could go on for ages about Joey Barron, but it's just that thing of the, this kind of character and individuality of sound, you know. Just something so heavy about Joey Barron, about the way in which... There's a virtuosity about the way Joey Barron plays, the way he hits the cymbal and the way in which the sound... It feels like the sound is the most important factor and everything follows that. And uh, and the thing with uh, with Paul Motion, and I don't know this for, for for a fact, but it just feels when I've listened to uh, you know a lot of the, a lot of the Jarrett stuff, and then I got into listening to this Cindy McGill podcast. Cindy McGill's on Podomatic as well, actually, which is why I found the, the Podomatic thing. And I like her podcast. I like the way she delivers it. It feels very, it's very warm and kind of um, unpretentious kind of thing. And uh, she's his niece, you know, and she plays all this archive stuff, and it's amazing stuff. But it just reaffirmed this thing of of everything was blank canvas, you know. Everything, you know, the compositions are really thought about and they're constructed, and there's, there's a lot of craft and hard work. But the playing is blank canvas. And, uh, and yeah, the, the, just this uh, thing about... Enrico, so he came to college and we did this workshop and uh, a student was asking him about playing with Paul Motion and uh, bless the student. And I know what, I know what he was saying, but he, he'd, he'd sort of missed the point. Um, he asked Enrico about playing with Paul Motion and about um, the vocabulary, Paul Motion's vocabulary and what he kind of got out of playing with Paul Motion's vocabulary. And I was like, oh, crikey. Uh, okay. And then Rico, he answered, he very, very generous the way he answered, but he was very to the point. 
he said, uh, I can't talk about his vocabulary because everything he played was was just was just in the moment for the music that was happening in the moment. He said, I never, I never heard. He said, I can't even talk about vocabulary in this. I can't even, I can't even put it into this sentence. You know, it was not, I'm paraphrasing, but he was basically saying Paul Motion didn't have vocabulary. <laughs> it's not, you know, you listen to Tony or Jack or Elvin or all these different players uh, Alan Dawson, you know, blah, blah, Vinnie Colliuta, Dave Weckl, Steve Gadd, you know, blah, 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 Pat Metheny, all these different people. They have a they have a language and vocabulary that they've developed is for sure. And it's like, uh, you know, I, I know what my vocabulary is and, and you know, the way I speak on the instrument and all that. Um, and Paul Motion, I, I can't think of anything, which is remarkable, you know. Uh, I can hear the sound, and the ears, you know, uh, just that thing of, of, of listening and creating in the moment, you know, amazing, absolutely amazing. Um, and that doesn't set him above or whatever anybody else. But the the only the two players that that I've listened to for totally different reasons that remind me or feel like they've got that vibe is certainly Blade. Um, it always feels to me like it's he's you know he's sitting down at the music at the instrument for the first time in the way in which he's expressing the ideas um with full knowledge of what's going on you know it's not naive in that sense of not knowing what the hell's going on it's absolutely not what it is it's just this thing of uh, some people have this ability to be fresh and not bring stuff and I, and i you know controversially maybe to some people, but I make no apologies. I believe Vinny has the same attitude. Um, Vinny's it's a very different thing. He's a massively influential drummer on me as well in lots of ways, um, especially as an attitude thing. Because the technique thing, I can't even comprehend it, you know. Um, it's just beyond me. It's like, you know, it's like skyscraper technique, isn't it? It's like just another vibe. And it's like a lot of other players. But, uh, it doesn't feel to me like Vinny, you know, rolls out the latest thing he's been working on. Like a lot of these amazing technical drummers feel like they're doing to me. They sort of work up to this thing and then they roll this thing out and then, or they play at 80%, you know, which I believe a lot of people play at 80%. Um, and I get it, you know, I wish I had more of a discipline to do that. I don't, I tend to go over 100% all the time. I tend to lose control and, and you know, regret it. And, oh, it's a nightmare. But you know, but it's the way I'm wired because I just want to go for it. You know, um, and in the right, you know, in the right circumstances and whatever. Sometimes it can be, you know, can be really happening. Um, but I just think like Vinny feels to me like he he, he executes a hundred percent. That's what it feels like to me. Whether you like it or not, it's a di- that's a totally different thing. That's got nothing to do with this vibe. It's just about the attitude of 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 the attitude of execution, you know. Um, so that's kind of I think that ends the uh, the sort of jazz drummer section. Oh no, it doesn't. No, 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 no. Crikey, sorry. Massively important drummer for me um, 
Well, there's two left, really. I'm gonna, in fact, I'm gonna go in reverse order here because Dennis Chambers was one, um, mainly because of John Schofield. Um, John Schofield was a really important musician to me, uh, a really important um, guitarist, and I loved his music. And it was the opposite of the sort of lyricism side of the stuff that I was listening to, particularly the the Matheny or the Frizzell stuff. I mean, Frizzell is actually great because the Frizzell thing, it kind of bridges lots of different worlds, but there's, there's that kind of Americana and country thing in the Frizzell thing, you know. Very much like the Charlie Hayden thing. It's just there's something about... There's like a sort of... Um, a folk folkiness in it, which I, which I really love and I feel very close to. I don't know why, but it feels close to my heritage or something to do with my partially Irish and Welsh roots. I don't know, but there's definitely something about it which, you know, which has something that connects to my spirit and heart. The scoey thing is like the opposite. It's the angular, something angular and interesting and, and, and really, again, this amazing vocabulary and, and way of soloing which is unique you know, on an instrument which is played by uh, millions of people, you know. That's what's always blown me away about the... If you look at this kind of little family of guitarists I always used to listen to, was I always saw, like, John Abercrombie, who I loved and used to play a lot with Erskine, you know. Um, I'll talk about Erskine in a minute because he's the, he's the finale of the jazz players uh, for this segment. Um, but the Abercrombie was like... I always saw him as, like, the dad the big daddy of um, of all this lot, or the uncle, or the, this is just like a bit older and uh, just had this lovely way of playing and improvising that was so never, it was never um, pushed or too much. It just had this wonderful, um, just ease. Always felt like it had an ease about it. Oh, it still does. And... Uh, but but there was something angular about it, which was great. I really liked that. And then, like Frizzell, like I've just talked about, it was like you know there was like Frizzell, there was Scoey, there was Matheny, and the other one was Stern. Oh, I would listen to a lot of Mike Stern, and Mike Stern got me into Peter Erskine. John Schofield got me into Dennis Chambers, uh, and I really I liked Dennis Chambers because he was so funky, and obviously the Parliament thing and all that. You know, he's come from that kind of background. But with a, with but it's just this kind of really muscular, strong vibe of getting around the instrument, the physicality with chambers, and this this ridiculous relaxed ease, almost nonchalant kind of attitude with it all. Um, but just this amazing energy, just that thing of really being just like like a Buddha, like being centered at the instrument, you know. Um, and Erskine as well, who I'm going to talk about now, always had that feeling as well. There's something about Peter Erskine sort of playing. Um, he's the kind of last player in this segment. So I got into Erskine through Mike Stern, a great album called Time in Place. Uh, and that album has, it's a funny book-ended album, actually. It's got Breckers on track one and track eight. Gossip and Chromosome, two quite famous fusion-y tunes that Stern wrote at that time. And then in the middle of that is six tracks with Bob Berg, the late, great Bob Berg. Actually, it's the late, great Michael Brecker as well, isn't it, sadly? You know, they're both no longer with us. Um, 
And but I was really into Bob Berg. I really liked his lyricism. It was one of the sort of um, the uh, the New York Bobs, as they call them: Bob Berg, Bob Malik, Bob Mincer. Um, and then there was there's another one as well, but Bob Shepard as well. And uh, what was the other guy's name? Anyway, yeah, the New York Bobs. There's quite a few of them, and they're all amazing tenor players. Um, and then there was Michael Brecker, who was just, you know, Michael Brecker, amazing, absolutely amazing musician. Um, great drummer, actually. Um, check his Texas, North Texas State masterclass out when he gets on the drums if you're a drummer it's like heavy uh, this guy was serious <laughs> and uh, yeah very humble vibe on that masterclass actually it's nice it's on YouTube the whole thing you can just watch it it's great it's really good very interesting very humbling to watch him talk about his early life and stuff you know if you have any doubts about the greatness of Michael Brecker you know listen to Klaus Oberman's Cityscape it's like a work of art and then listen to Don't Let Me Be Lonely Tonight, James Taylor, the sax solo on that. He was like 19, I think, when he played that solo or something. I don't know. He was a young guy. And it sounds like a guy who's been alive a long time, you know. Eight bars of mastery. It's just, you know, whatever people think about, you check out, check it out. That's all I've got to say. Anyway, um, the Mike Stern thing got me into Peter Erskine. And uh, and I was really, yeah, loved... I mean, Erskine was one of my favourite players and was probably... When I ended up in the DW kind of sound world of the early 90s, I think really uh, my heart was in the Peter Erskine thing for quite a long time. I think that was where my head really was. Um For quite a number of reasons, because I kind of really got... I got into fusion, really, and I was... It was. It wasn't until I was like in my late twenties, um, maybe even my mid thirties, where I actually started to really explore the this more jazzy, like the coated head sound, you know, away from the clear head sound. Uh, I still like a clear head now, but they, we got into this thing of like, you know, Evans made this head called the EC two. And they made, they've got two versions of the EC2. There's a clear version, which is basically like a Remo pinstripe, but it's better, in my opinion. Um, and that's not because I have a, a relationship with Daddario and with, with Evans. I just think it's a better head. I do like the pinstripe. I do like a Remo head full stop. I like it. I like an, I still like an ambassador. Um, still a great head, especially the anniversary heads. But, Evans made this head called an EC2. And they, like Evans, it's one of those heads they made where I believe they really nailed it, you know. Uh, and they made two versions of it. There's like an opaque one and a clear one. And the it's the opaque one that I use because it has that kind of coated head character, you know. So um, anyway, that's kind of... I think that's the end of this segment. Oh, well, I was going to tell you, uh, sorry, uh, a Peter Erskine. One Peter Erskine track that I recommend that you listen to if you can find it. Uh, and don't be put off by the title of it. It's um, it's just uh, a title. Um, it's on an amazing Vince Mendoza album called Start Here. And it's called Babe of the Day. Uh, if you listen to that that track... 
is like a stream of consciousness from beginning to end with Erskine. It's it's like I still I was uh, there's a bass player called Orofo Arakwe who I used to play with, and I used to be in, uh, in Alad Jones's band uh, called A to Z. Um, which well, I was in 1990. I used to, when I lived in London, I was in a band with some great musicians, um, George Mariani and uh, Orofo and uh, myself in the rhythm section and late great friend of mine, Johnny Webb, was a sax player in that band. And um, Tony um, Lopez, brilliant fusion guitarist. Don't know where Tony is now. I'd love to know where Tony is now. Um, this guy was amazing. He was a maniac. Very, very funny guy. Uh, a brilliant musician and uh yeah uh we were in the, we had that uh, that that kind of band together and Orpho was another one of these people that was really into interesting music and I'd never heard of Vince Mendoza and he gave me this cassette um and he said oh you'll really like this music uh and I was obsessed with this stuff for years um and I just used to play the... You only put three tracks from this album, but the first track's called Babe of the Day. And straight from the beginning, from the first hit of this high... I think it's an eight-inch tom, I think, or a ten, not sure. Um, it's, like, incredible. But there was a real thing around that time. Erskine, uh, he made an album called Transitions. Uh, it's a solo album. Uh, no, sorry, not, sorry, it's one of his own albums, a Peter Erskine album. Um, and you read the liner notes there was a real thing at that time about recording drums and about getting amazing an amazing drum sound recorded you know captured and uh, you can really hear that with Erskine at that time and if you listen to that track beginning to end it's like perfect. Everything about it is perfect. There's just this. Um, it's what he's doing with the beat, where he's turning the beat round at points, and the way he brings grooves in, and then the way he opens out, and suddenly where he lands with phrases. And it's him and Will Lee on that. And it's like because Will Lee's on bass, and like Will Lee's just amazing. And you just think of Will Lee from you know doing his American chat shows, and then his Beatles tribute band to then playing like the heaviest fusion music in the world. This you know it's like another one of those um, like skyscraper musicians, amazing like musicians. that's just got this kind of manic energy for an ability for everything, you know. But the way in which him and Erskine play on that track, the way the way he underpins Erskine, it's like the telepathic. In this, just and he's and he's and he's brilliant writing as well because Vince Mendoza, I think, is a genius and he's writing, he's orchestrating, and he's the way in which he, the way in which he paints a picture with music, the emotion of the music is just staggering, and the way Erskine plays his music is staggering, you know. Um, and it's been, as you can probably hear from the way I'm describing it, it's been an obsession of mine for years and still is actually. Um, I, I dip in and out of it now because I'm listening to different things, but um, it's still even now, you know, uh, stuff that's kind of uh, really, you know, stayed with me. Um, so I'm going to finish because uh, I've been going on for ages. Uh, and this was always, I forgot to mention at the beginning because it was like the worst introduction to a podcast. This is part one 
of a two-part thing, episode thing. And I was basically, this is the jazz years or the jazz drummers or whatever. Um, I didn't really want to talk about Brian Blade in this section because I'm going to talk about Brian Blade in the next episode, which is um, a whole different bunch of drummers which have influenced me. And uh, and for me, Blade is the bridge between the two, uh, simply because of all the different styles of music that he plays, you know. Um, he's, you know, people see him as this perfect drummer, don't they? And uh, it's like, he's pretty, yeah, he's pretty happening, isn't he? You know what I mean? <laughs> he's, yeah, he's pretty good. He's pretty good. Um, so I'm going to end there. And um, next week is Influential Drummers Part 2. And it's more about uh, drummers that, they're more connected to the um, the kind of the the singer songwriter or the pop or the rock or the whatever world to me than the jazz players, um, and I you know it's very hard to sort of separate them out because some of the couple of the drummers in there are definitely fusiony or jazz drummers, but I see them as um, as drummers that have really influenced me for completely different reasons, you know, um, and. Yeah, and Vinny, again, is another one, like Blade, who, who bridges, you know, bridges the two worlds. So, um, yeah, so that's kind of it. <clears throat> uh, hope you're well and have a good week and keep safe and all those kind of things. We just, you know, with the tentative steps at the moment of opening up society again very, very slowly. Uh, I really, you know, really hope that we do it in the right way. Um, because it would be good to just do it once. Um, I fear that um, it may not be possible to just do it once. I fear that you know, uh, you know, like even with China this week, they've had this spike in cases in the in the origin Wuhan. You know, so they they were saying it was gone. There was no new cases and no no deaths, and suddenly. You know, it's jumped up again. Um, there's something weird about this virus. And just you know, they're going to get to the bottom of where it can, how it can lurk, seems to lurk and live for a long, long period of time within people, and able to sort of infect people after you know weeks of, of you know somebody being infected and not knowing. So I don't know. It's all very, very strange. But what I, you know, what I hope is that we do it right and we do. It we, you know, we can do it once, and we can get back to some gigs. It'd be great to um, to get the gigs going again. I, I follow a few people on Instagram who live on the other side of the world in Hong Kong and places, and um, somebody's next student from college and stuff, and uh, follow a friend of his. And uh, I've seen they were gigging this week, and I noticed a few weeks ago they were gigging, and they sort of stopped gigging, and they've started gigging again. So. I'm sort of hoping, you know, the next in the next don't know four to six weeks that we we chance of doing some small gigs in small venues, you know, with some social distancing and what have you. Um, that would be like an amazing thing. And then hopefully, as we get into, you know, I don't want to talk about the autumn now because it's the spring, but when we get into the autumn and start getting into that time of year that 
the gigging might start happening again. But I'm not sure this year whether there's going to be very much. I don't know. Um, fingers crossed. So anyway, yeah, thanks for listening, everybody. Stay safe. And um, I'll be doing the next episode. It'll be I'll be doing it this week, actually, so it'll be out earlier. So I'm going to try and get back to the Sundays again. So sorry I'm a bit late again, but... Uh, Thanks for listening and bye for now.